I was responsible for the car. That's the company car. The, the, news, the, the newspaper's car. The car in the background on fire is the company yeah, car. Yeah, that's the company car. Like, what can you do? You just laugh. Take a good photo. Take for, it. That's, for a great, Facebook. that's a great picture. <laughs> uh, I think that picture used to be on my Tinder. Um, <laughs> get, get her done. <laughs> <laughs> I got a new soundboard, so I'm just having a little bit of fun. Anyway, what's up everyone and welcome to the Wide Awake Podcast. Today I have an awesome guest. His name is Ryan Jacobs and uh, he was a conflict photographer and photojournalist and recently he has decided to attempt to row across the Atlantic Ocean solo. Welcome to the studio, Ryan. Thanks for having me, dude. It's an absolute pleasure. When did you get into photography? Ah, shit. Um, a dream, dude. I, um, you know, I guess when I was at school... Um, you know, my, my primary ambition or dream was to be a fighter pilot. And uh, watching Top Gun. Watching Top Gun. <laughs> no, I used to be obsessed with war, but uh, no one told me you have to be like really good at maths to fly. And I'm fucking terrible at mathematics. But um, the second choice was to be a photojournalist. And the reason being is uh, when I was a kid, my, you know, my mom would read me regular bedtime stories about you know, Peter Pan or Peter Rabbit or Jungle Book or whatever. And then my grandfather would take over. And this like when I was a lighty, when I was small, he would read me encyclopedias and maps and history books. And I would see these pictures of, of history being made and these big events. And I wanted to see those things. I wanted to see, I wanted to be part of those things. And that's what's it. You know, I never had a goal of being a photographer. You know, I wanted to be a conflict photographer. I wanted to see history being made. Um, at the time, I didn't realize what that involved. I had no idea. But um, I guess that's where it started. And then one day when I was 25, I switched on the TV and uh, the Arab Spring was happening live. And I realized that opportunities like that don't come around every day. So what is the Arab Spring? Arab Spring was a series of revolutions in the in well, North Africa and the Middle East. And, you know, what started in one country, Tunisia, it soon spread throughout the Mediterranean and even to the, the Arab states um, where after decades of, you know, dictatorships, the people were just like, the hell with this and started to change it. Um, yeah, it started with a dude, I can't remember what prices he was complaining about, but he set himself on fire and protests erupted from that and spread to Egypt, which is what I saw in Tahrir Square. So a man TV. to kind of make a stand, set yeah. himself on fire. Yeah. yeah. Why is this because, do you think it was maybe because no one was listening to what they were saying? And he was like the only way to get someone's attention or the people's attention yeah. is to, to do something radical. I think you push yourself far. You think you, I think you push anyone far enough. There's um, there's only so much they can take. And I guess for him, that was his way of, you know, standing up to, you know, just saying enough, just saying enough. Um, yeah. And that was, um, it feels like a long time ago, more, more than a decade ago now. So... Was that your first conflict that you documented? No. So, um, you know, my, my, my 20s were, my early 20s were, like I traveled around a bunch. I'd work at a bar in town, make some money, go overseas for a few months. 
Um, I love the jaw. Used to love the jaw. <laughs> um, and one morning I woke up, like I said, and and put the TV on. I was fucking hanging, and um, you know I just realized that, like I said, this opportunity was right here. And so I flew to Egypt. I flew to Cairo, and I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing. But by the time I got to Cairo, um, this was must have been late March. Um, the revolution was finished. Like I, on TV, Tahrir Square was full of a million people in the center of Cairo. By the time I got there, there was no one there. It was, uh, the, the revolution was finished. The president was gone. Um, things were changing. And so, but protests had started in Libya. So I took a bus to the border and after being denied the first time, you know, and I'm not working for anyone. I had no idea I needed a press pass or... So were you funding this by yourself? Yeah, everything was out of pocket. And you were like, let's just go and do this. Because, yeah, yeah, why not? You know, it's... Uh, if, if you have to wait for someone's permission to do something, you're never going to get that permission. You're never going to get the approval you're after. And saying to someone, hey, I want to go be a conflict photographer. I want to go see war. Nine times, no, actually 10 out of 10 times, they're going to say no. That's ex that's exactly it. You know, I, I mean, I'm also, well, I used to be a documentary photographer. Mm -hmm. And do you remember what ha just happened in Durban with the, with the riots? Yeah. It was about a year yeah. ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really wanted to go document the riots. Mm -hmm. But you're going to ask someone, do you think this is a good idea? Of course, they're going to say no. You know, at the end, <laughs> what I've learned is it's not just a matter of concern for your safety. Um, most people can't be bothered. It's a matter of liability. So lots of publications, lots of uh, newspapers, whatever. They want news from these places, but if they send you and you're a freelancer and something happens to you... They're liable for it. They're liable for it. You know, whether it's your gear, whether it's your life, whether it's your health. Um, lots of publications now are reluctant to, to send people to, to where news is coming from. Conflict zones and... Or anywhere, really, like... Yeah, that's just the nature of... Tell me about Syria. Or Libya. 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 This was your first yeah. time. Um, no, I got to the border. I had no idea you needed a press pass to to be a conflict photographer, but I had no... Um, are there ways around that, but maybe we can talk about that later. <laughs> um, so they, I, get to, I get to the border with Libya. Uh, the Egyptians let me pass. Um, I get to the other side... And the Libyans are like, fuck off, not even like interested. So I'm sitting back on the Egyptian side for hours. Nothing, nothing is happening. And I can't go anywhere. I was like, what the fuck have you done, Ryan? Like of all the places in the world, like you're sitting in the middle of the desert. Uh, but like it's still, it's exciting. It's fun. And this minivan rocks up and it's full of photographers. It's full of like photogens. And these guys were amazing. And they're like, who are you? And I was like, yeah, X, Y, Z. They're like, who are you working for? And I was like, no one. And they're like, what do you mean you're working for no one? <laughs> and I was like, I just want to come take pictures. Like, this is what I want to do for a living. And I figure there's no better way to start. And this one guy, he took a liking to me and he was like, shut the fuck up. Let me do the talking. Come, let's go. Just top in. Yeah. And um, that was how that started. And I spent, and I was in education. I was very naive. A lot of the things I saw, I did not understand. Um, it was crazy because I'd spe you'd spend, uh, you know, I stayed in a five-star hotel in Benghazi and then every morning we'd take a taxi to the front line. Um, 
It's not what I expected. It's not what I thought I was going to get myself into. But, um, you know, coming back from Libya, that's how I got a job at um, a newspaper in Cape Town. And that was the start of several years of adventures and education. And I mean, when you were there this this first time, mm. um, was it what you thought it would be? No, no. I, I learned very quickly that war is 95% of the time absolutely boring. The most mundane shit ever. Nothing's happening. And for some reason in, in Libya, every single picture you would take, there'd always be these smiling Libyans showing peace signs. And you try to take a picture, even though at the time I barely knew how to take a picture. And it's, you know, when things are going well for them, they want you around. And when things are not going well for them, you're the worst person in the world. Um, but yeah, it was, I, you know, I think that naivety... It, it protected me a lot and it, it kind of, what's the word? Um, how can I say this? It not knowing what I was getting myself into was the best protection I had because if I was in the same position now making that decision, I would definitely choose otherwise. Um, you know, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is, is, is amazing. Um, but yeah, I was, it was interesting. And I think something that I've learned quite recently mm. is that when you go into these places, um, especially seeing what's going on overseas right now, you see that a lot of these people that are fighting aren't soldiers. No, dude. No. They're just everyday civilians. They, um, they're just ordinary people push too far. And also maybe like me, naive. You know, they... Um, and also, also, I think it's it's... You know, in hindsight, depending where you are in the world, everybody likes a hero. Everyone likes a good cause. In the Middle East, where the possibility of death, it's considered a good thing. You know, inshallah. You know, it's God wills it. You know, if you if you die for a good cause, good for you. Which is not, you know, something that's necessarily shared in other parts of the world. But, you know, what I saw was, old men who had had enough and young men who didn't know better. Um, and a lot of them died. Um, yeah. What's that like? I mean, because I'm sure you form relationships with certain people and in these kind of environments, you probably form a very close relationship very quickly. I think, I think, um, you know, I, 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 I made very good friends with other colleagues and, and reporters. Um, which, which, which I'm agreeing with you on. And those relationships and friendships, you know, spread, span continents. Um, just amazing stories, amazing adventures, great friendships. And when something bad happens to them, you, you feel it. I think, I think after a while, you know, moving down the line and, and after getting to other conflicts, it's no longer a question of, uh, if this is going to happen to me, if something's going to happen to me, it's a matter of when something's going to happen to me. Um, and I also, I also realized, you know, when, when I was in Libya, being naive and not necessarily knowing what I'm doing, um, it was just an, an assault, just like this massive fucking shock on the system because you hear sounds you have never heard before. You smell things you've never smelled before. You, 
you experience, it's almost like your eyes see, you know, but like the wheels in your brain are going to take a while to catch up with you. And very quickly I learned that my success as a photographer or my access as, you know, in documenting this is dependent on someone else's suffering. Um, you're only as good as your picture. If it bleeds, it leads, blah, blah, blah. But if I went and if I went out in Libya or Syria or wherever and I photograph X, Y, and Z and go back to an editor, um, they don't want soft. They don't like the, I think in photographing conflict, there's so many ways to photograph a conflict. There's so many ways to photograph a war. You know, you don't have to be on the front line, but when you're selling those pictures and that's what it is, at the end of the day, it's business, okay? It's not like these altruistic, you know, men and women gain into the world to shed light on something only. Certainly that is the case, but at the same time, it's a job, okay? You need to pay rent. You need to, you like nice things, you need to pay for nice things. You like holidays, you have to make money. So, you know, I, my, my first day, I'll tell you a story. My first day on the front line in Libya, I was in a town called Ajdabia. Um, it was about two hours from Benghazi. You know, I spent a very nice night in a five-star hotel called Hotel Uzu. And um, what we would do is what I'd, what I'd learned, what I'd learned is that, so like all these big networks were in the same hotel, BBC, CNN, whoever, and these dudes have like monopoly money and they will book out the entire floor and put the entire crew. And so, you know, as long as the hotel is getting paid, you go down to dinner or whatever the meal is and they ask which room are you in or which floor are you on? And you say, no, nah, I'm on like the fifth floor for instance. And that just happens to be where CNN is. Okay, so you bull everything to them. They don't know any better. They don't care. They can just pay it cash. And so I'm loving this life. It's amazing, it's fascinating. Walking through Benghazi, everyone's friendly, just, just incredible. And you know, I take a front, I take a taxi to the front line that first day, and nothing happens. Nothing happens. Just random Libyans shooting off into the desert, shooting, you know, at nothing. You can't see the enemy or the whoever the enemy is. Um, but yeah, whatever. And at the end of the day, I'm sitting on the side of the road smoking a cigarette. And all of a sudden, this technical, this Isuzu Baki, uh, it has a recoilless rifle on the back. There are three dudes around it, one inside, one on top, one next to it. Um, just goes up, just like the sound. You don't, you don't see, you don't hear the sound. You feel, you feel the sound. And the next thing I remember is I'm halfway to this truck, just, and I, I didn't realize anything. My legs were just moving and I was just moving. Um, and we get to this truck and it's burning. Um, you know, now, now that I know what, you know, what kind of weapons you find and, you know, you become a student of, of militaries and tactics and weapons and who has what, um, maybe it was a wire guided missile, you know, fired from, it could be miles away. But um, the first dude I come to, he's been put into the back of a truck. He has a cut in his head. Uh, everyone's praising God, hands in the air. Like it, he just looks defiant. And, I was, and I'm taking these pictures and I was shaking so much 
that the lens cap. Were these people on the side that you were with? Or? Yeah, they were the rebels. They were Syrian, Lib- Libyan rebels, sorry. My lens hood, my hand was shaking. I was shaking so much the lens hood came off. So all the pictures I have have like this corner of the lens hood in every single frame. Um, and then, you know, I move further along the line and there's this kid younger than me um, in just in bad shape, just just terrible shape. And it's it's crazy. War is fucking mad. And they put this kid on the, the bonnet of this, I think it's the, was it Toyota Camry or something, like to evacuate him. But they're re- driving this Toyota Camry that's lowered through desert sand. And Sahara sand is, is something special. And it hits a bump or something. And this kid just goes flying. So like this day, this kid's already having a cock day, you know? <laughs> I don't want to laugh. But <laughs> no, like, you know, but that's the fucking thing, dude. It's madness. It's, it is, it's yeah. crazy. Um, just anarchy. Just, an, just, just, yo. And they put the kid in the boot and they evacuate them. And I've got this picture of uh, this dude looks like a Spartan with his mask on and pushing this kid, uh, you know, to this day, I'm not sure if that kid survived. I don't think so. He's, his shoulder was fucked, top of his head was going, bad day. And then there was a third man, older man. And um, he had his legs blown off, but everything was there. He was wearing shoes, right? So everything to the knee was there. And then everything from the knee down was just bone and the flesh had been ripped off his, his legs. And just so it's like knee, bone, shin bone, shoes. And... Like the violence that happens in wars is, you know, I've seen violence in many places, but warfare is just people are fucking something else. But, you know, the point that, that I took from it is I photograph all this, don't know how I feel about it. I take a, a drive back to Benghazi. I go into the hotel and all the other photographers had left because early in the day, because it was so boring, nothing was happening. And, I, was, I wasn't shaken up, but I, I definitely was distracted. And these other photographers, there was this German dude, and um, I showed them the pictures, and the first thing they say was, well done. It is, it's a crazy thing, isn't it? Yeah, and I never understood, well, I never understood that for a long time, that you're saying well done to me, but like people just died. And um, I never, I could never fathom that. I could never... I never understood that, you know, and and that led me down this this way of seeing how how your success is dependent on someone else's suffering. You you get so caught up in a situation, mm. and uh, for you, like you say, it's a job. Mm. It's not. There's it, it more to it than a job, but at the end of the day, it is a job. At the end of the day, yeah. Mm. And you are waiting around for something bad to happen, and mm. that's that's how I felt. If tell a story, yeah. It it got to the point where I mean I'm very passionate about what I do. I love telling stories, mm. and it's not all about the pay because I don't think I've ever been paid once to take a documentary <laughs> for, like for, photograph. Yeah, but it was it was more than that to me. It was more mm. like the excitement, going places that other people wouldn't go. Mm. But at the end of the day, I kind of came to the realization is I was becoming a bit of a sick individual. Because I was waiting for something bad to happen. And when it did, I was excited. Yeah. Which is a scary thought. You know, when when I was a kid, when I was in high school, I read Catch-22 
by I think Joseph Heller and he was a bomber pilot during the second world war and when I was 18 or 19 and I read that book I didn't understand anything it was fucking crazy madness uh made no sense and then I read it again as as a 32 year old or 33 year old after being to war and that book made the most sense in the world like war is absolutely insanity it is absolutely madness and a lot of people thrive off chaos. Lots of people. I thrive off chaos. I love chaos. You know, I think, you know, to put yourself out on the edge um, and then come back from it, that is a powerful thing. I think it beats any fucking drug, any drug, any experience. Um, I'm not saying go to war. If anyone had to ask me now, you know, oh, I want to become a conflict photographer, should I go? And I asked lots of uh, before I did, I asked other photojournalists for advice and saying I want to do this and all of them responded the same way. If you're going to do it, do it. Don't talk about it. Just fucking do it. Just go. Because if you have to look at it logically, why? It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's, yeah. What is the scariest place you've been to or the scariest situation that you've been in? Oof. Um... I think I think that's I think that's relative to the situation. Definitely in conflict, um, Aleppo in Syria. I have never been more scared, or feeling like I was about to die. Um, like I have lots of adventures, you know, in the in the years since, but my experience in Aleppo was enough for me to to say to myself, enough. Like, you don't have to do this anymore. There's nothing to prove. Uh, you gave it a good burn, didn't work out like you wanted. If you keep doing this in this place, in Aleppo, Syria, you know, it's just a matter of time until you get killed, maimed, or your head chopped off by a bunch of crazies. And was there any specific incident that happened? Or was it mainly just the whole time there was just... Ah, no, they had, had a great time. You know, the people like, you know, <laughs> Syrians, Syrians are great people. Syrians are amazing. Uh, the food's delicious. I was with a bunch of other photographers. Um, you know, we were, we were staying with this Katib, which is like a fighting unit and mainly kids, um, not professional soldiers, you know, dri and driving around. It's, it was an adventure. And there was one day we were in this neighborhood called Saladin, I remember. And, you know, the one thing the Syrian regime has is air superiority, which is, which is a trip. And it's the day that I, I realized that I'm actually glad I didn't become a fighter pilot. But I went into this mosque and there was a little boy there. And this imam comes to me and I, I didn't take my boots off. And, you know, part of me feels, feels guilty about that because, you know, I've, I've, I have the utmost respect for Islam and, um, the Middle East and, and, you know, the shoes are, your feet are dirty, you know, and, and such places should be treated with respect. But he says like, take your shoes off, take your shoes off. And I was like, nah, fuck that. Like I'm not, if I, if I take my boots off and I need to run, there's fucking glass and rocks everywhere. It's just mm -hmm. dangerous. So I was about to leave the mosque rather, you know, there was, there was, there was nothing really to take pictures of. And as we walking out the, the mosque, uh, this jet, like uh, a MIG, you know, starts screaming. And if you've, if you've been to an air show, like you can watch Top Gun as much as you want. Jets are loud. But like nothing, nothing comes close to like the, that real scream. And this, this jet comes in on a run 
And I didn't hear it. I felt it like in my very core. And everything inside of me was saying, leave, just leave. But I couldn't move. Like I, like everything just locked up. And uh, I thought, okay. You know, but that's the thing, you're in a city, uh, noises are echoed. You don't know if, like it felt like the jet was on top of me, you know, on top of us. And I look at this kid and he was, his face was just like, ah, just another day. Just another day, like it was nothing. Um, yeah, and that that sound, you know, that drove out any interest in me to continue being a conflict photographer. I'm happy I went to Libya and Syria and Palestine. I'm happy I've saw, I've seen all of that. I'm happy I went to more than one war. I'm happy more than anything else that I achieved my dream. And then I, at the same time, I realized like, nah, this isn't the dream for me. Um, yeah, I... I yeah, I'd like to live a long time. And uh, do you have any like PTSD from these days? Ah, dude, yo, that's a fucking story. Um, you know, I think it, it alienates you. You know, it maybe make. I went to Libya, and I, and Syria, and I struggled for a long time because this, the perspective you you get in those situations, it kind of excludes you from the rest of of society. People who've never seen that, people who've never experienced. And it's not to take away from their own experience. We are all unique. We all have our own story. But I would go to these places and then come back to Cape Town and or anywhere in the world, really, with people who, who haven't, you know, been gifted with that perspective. And I, I, I struggle to connect, pardon me, with people a lot of the time, for a long time. For the longest time, I, I wasn't able to, to communicate properly. Um, and, that's, and that's fear. It's, it's like I said, like you, your eyes see it in the situation. In the moment, you see these things happening in front of you. You feel it. But you but can't comprehend it. You can't, but at the same time, you can't comprehend it at that time because you need to focus on the year and now. You need to be 100% present. You need to get out of there alive. You need to survive. And then when I came home... And um, things were, you know, relatively calm. And, you know, I, I found myself struggling to, to communicate with people a lot of the time. Um, relationships, my family, friends, um, just became like my way of, of dealing these, with these things would be to like clam up and keep everything inside. And then I would explode, you know, with, with rage and, you know, drinking didn't do me any favors at all. Um, did you have a, an addiction problem or I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I, have a, I wouldn't say I had an addiction problem that wouldn't be to take away from anyone because addiction is a, a serious thing but my problem was never drinking my problem was knowing when to stop drinking and as long as I was drinking everything else was on the outside you know everything I also had to deal with was elsewhere and it took a long time to deal with that and I could always make excuses so, okay I stopped drinking like that level and you work your way down, but still, you, you know, you're still feeding the same beast. So it's only recently that I've, I've noticed like, shit, I don't need to drink at all. And not something inside of me forcing me to drink, but just being like, I feel better, my mind's clearer, I can communicate better, um, I don't have hangovers. Uh, 
um, you realize that drinking is, is, is a social bond and your life is actually better with a lot of the people you've been drinking with, without a lot of the people you've been drinking mm. with. Definitely. You know, like this shit doesn't benefit me at all. No. You know, don't get me wrong. Like um, It can be fun. It can be fun. <laughs> I've had a great time. Dude. I, I think, you know, drugs are great. Whatever. I still have. But some know, people just don't know when to stop. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm at an age now where I'm, I'm thinking about, about having kids at some point. I'm thinking about the next step of my life. I'm thinking about what else I can do. And drinking isn't going to help me in any way. No. Um, it's going to hold you back. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying like, oh, I'm not going to, I'm going to quit drinking forever, but I just don't see myself. Um, You're not prioritizing it. Fuck no. No, <laughs> I can't. I can't. Um, but yeah, dealing dealing with a lot of those feelings from Libya and Syria and battling with those in my head, um, it took a long time. It took a long time to to come to terms with that. Like I still think about, if there's one thing I think about a lot is... Um, those men I saw so die in Libya on my first day. Um, like I, w- I would have liked to know their names. I would have, I photographed them. You, know? you don't know who they are. But I don't know who they are. And um, not some, you know, maybe, maybe does that, would that give me uh, solace? Would that give me closure? Mm. I don't know. Um, but I think I, w- I, was, I was taught to respect people. And yeah, I was, you know, uh, trespassing even on these people's final moments. The very least I could do was know their name. And that's the thing is, um, I mean, especially when it comes to, like like we were saying earlier, um, you see these things. Mm. And I mean, I've never gone to other countries to document Mm. Uh, but i've done a lot in south africa and uh, i've never seen to the extent you've seen but there's so much going on just here as well fuck you and um that's i I work a lot in a lot of different areas Mm. and uh sometimes i feel like i also know too much about what's going on and i'm the kind of person that doesn't know how to separate that you know go like this is the work I do Mm. and when I'm not doing it I need to kind of carry on with life and a lot of people can probably do that go I've seen this but like put it to the side yeah um what I was going to ask is how do you carry on living life knowing that all of these things are going on around us around the world I'm gonna get mine I think uh that oh your you know the perspective is invaluable to have. Um, there's a lot of shit in this world that I don't understand and people that do, I respect them for it. I take their word for it. Um, my best mate's a doctor. Would I expect to understand what it's like to be a doctor? Fuck no. Um, but I think there's there's value and like working in working in the Cape as well, covering stories, is there's value to to be realistic and know what happens in the world. The world is a fucked up place. There are many bad things happening out there, but there are also many beautiful things happening out there. Yeah. There are also many amazing experiences to have and enjoy. And why must I shoot myself in the face? Why must anyone stop themselves from living their best life? You know, that's just the way the world works. Someone's going to lose. I think 
what you're saying is is amazing because you have to acknowledge that these things happen. You have to. But at the same time, and do what you can, mm. where you can, but you can't stop living your life You're not a martyr. because of it. Yeah, I'm not going to be a martyr. Like I, I, you know, it's like if you had to, I find it fascinating how people can pick and choose the cause they follow. You know, like, oh, I, I support this, so I, can't, I won't do that. But that other thing, that's okay in my book, so we're going to ignore that. You know, that's, that's like, why must my life suffer year and now, okay, because of X, Y, or Z. And I think to, you know, the things I've seen and the things I've done, the perspective it's given me is invaluable. And if any, and I appreciate that perspective. I, I appreciate that perspective because at least I and people like me can understand what is out there. What is at risk? What is there to gain? You're not turning a blind eye. You're not turning, I'm very much aware of the world. I'm very much aware of the world. Rather than sit, you know, like in my ivory castle and preach to people when I have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. Mm. And that's that's the thing that really gets to me a lot of the mm. time. And I find South Africans mm. are the worst protesters ever. <laughs> <laughs> it, dep- it depends. It depends. I'm I'd- talking about like about Cape- white South Africans. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, because it's like it's like when, no, when something goes down, right? Mm. And I'm not trying to be an asshole or anything, mm. but like remember the massive gender-based violence protest that happened in town a while yeah, ago, yeah. a few years ago, mm. right? Everyone is so passionate about a cause. Mm. But after a week or two, there's no passion there. People go home, you know, people forget. I think- Like, was it was it Hong Kong where there was the, was China's like trying to take over Hong Kong? Yeah, and they were out there for weeks or months. Dude, they were out there for months. And the only time yeah. they had to go back was because of the, I think the pandemic started or something. And what you were saying about these protests that kind of fade out after a few days or a few hours with no conviction. When people protest poor living conditions or service delivery, they are there for weeks, dude. They, they want to change their world. In, yeah. They want to change their world. And when people come out for like, do you remember during lockdown, there were those dudes protesting at fucking the beach because they couldn't surf. Bro, I, I yeah. died. And they were like, oh, <laughs> this is like apartheid. And I was like, motherfucker, no. This is not like a party. No. I was I was in Checkers the other day. There was someone yeah. in this area yeah. here. Someone put up a board, yeah, like a surfboard. They tied it to a pole, and they were like, "Free the wave!" Or something. I was like, "I was like, oh my god, bro! People are literally like starving to death." And you're like, exactly. "And I understand sport, and I'm sure you, as an adventurer, you can mm. understand sport for your mental health." But it's great to good. When but at the a, same time, it's like just suck it up for a bit, man. When there's a when there's a when there's a worldwide pandemic and millions of people are dying and many people are at risk, I think you should shut the fuck up and accept it. Just you, you have access to the beach when the majority of South Africans are struggling to put food on the table. Yeah, everyone needs to make sacrifices yeah. right now. And but, like the attitude I, f- I find, like I was in checkers or and this, there was this woman in front of me and she was complaining about load shedding. And uh, she was like, things in South Africa have never been this bad. And I was They've like, been way worse, man. I was like, uh, I actually, it's, I prefer load shitting to being shot in the road. Yeah, I agree you to know? disagree. You know, like, shut up. I didn't, okay, didn't say this to her because she was talking to someone else. And I just was like, ah, you people. But, um, you know, I think, yeah, everything boils down to perspective. I wanted a different life as a child. I wanted a life of adventure. And so I made it my goal to get it. 
Amazing, man. And mm. I think before we move on to your adventures, let's get into some of your photos that you've taken. Sure. And uh, basically, we've got a screen over here and we're just going to be running through the photos. I'm going to display them for you guys as well. And uh, Ryan's just going to tell us a little bit about them and the story behind them. Cool. So tell me a little bit about this shot, man. Ah, uh, that was in Aleppo in the old city. And the old city was um, one of the oldest habitable, habitable places in the world. It's like thousands of years old. And in the center of the city, there's a citadel which overlooks everything. And I spent the day with a sniper um, crawling around abandoned apartments with him. You know, you can see in this, this people's flat, they left very quickly, like there's a shoe there. Um, I don't blame them, obviously, but um, yeah, I spent a day crawling around through burnt out buildings, um, abandoned apartments, and just, it was like a work shadow, a job shadow for a day. And yeah, he was going to work. I mean, you could see in that apartment, I don't know if that was his or just some random apartment that no, they it wasn't were in. His. It wasn't his. But there's just bullet holes all over the wall. Yeah. No, like I remember that window, it'll be to his right, to my right, well, to his right. Um, you could see the citadel. So we had to be very stealthy, keep very low, be very small. Um, it, it, was, it, it was more exciting than it was scary. Um, you know, in, in urban conflict compared to like Libya, for example, say for instance, a bomb or a shell or mortar lands in sand that explode, the force of that explosion is forced upwards and downwards. Whereas in a city, when, um, an explosive hits concrete or a building, that force is, is pushed outward. So, you know, you're in an open space, a shell lands, shrapnel is, goes up. You know, it's it's safer. Happens in a city, you have to contend with shrapnel uh, bouncing off the road, bouncing off the walls. The wall becomes shrapnel. There's falling glass everywhere. Um, everything around you becomes like a projectile. Everything will kill you. Um, yeah, I remember that day very well. And uh, who is this guy? That's the that's the kid I was talking about. Um, is that the kid in the mosque? And the, that's the kid in the mosque, yeah. So what they do is that that neighborhood was called Salahadin. And um, what they did all over um, Aleppo and other cities in Syria is they would drape these tops across the street. And that's a sniper curtain. So, you know, life would continue as normal. Um, but you try and prevent snipers from taking pot shots at you. And so, yeah, somewhere on the other side of that curtain, people were scared that a sniper might see them or a sniper was actually looking at them, looking at them. And that was to impede their vision. And uh, it's actually, a, I mean, it's a stunning photograph. Mm -hmm. um, it's just from a technical perspective. It's just, uh, there's, there's a lot going on, but at the same time, it feels very still. Mm. And uh, what I love about it is that the kid is really sharp and in focus. Mm. And uh, his gaze at you is just very like, it just draws you into the picture. And I love that the background of the photo is slightly blurred. Mm, the, you know, the background was shit. The background's bad. I love the background yeah. because it tells a story, mm, you know? That curtain tells a story. It's not all about the, the perfect composition. Mm. It's sometimes these unintended things that can make 
the story, you know? Because I'm sure you didn't want him placed in front of that curtain for a particular reason, or no. did you? You no, kind of no, just captured we, that photo. We were just there. So the mosque actually in that picture that I was talking about is right behind me when I took that picture. So this is after we had just come out the mosque. Um, and we're walking through the streets. Um, you know, the funny thing is, dude, like you, we, on one street, there'd be a market. Like life as normal, go have a have a kebab, you know, eat, carrying on. And you go two blocks over and it's a front line and there's just rubble and everything there is just blasted to all fucking hell. It's just gone. Um, have you seen the movie 13 Hours? Is that the one sitting in Benghazi? Yeah, yeah. Sitting in Benghazi. It. Yeah, yeah, watch that. Yeah. So one of the crazy things, and I like these movies, mm. but at the same time, I know a lot of the time they're quite exaggerated and it's like mm. American storytelling where like they're- the America hit. saves the world. Yeah, America. Yeah. But um, the thing that I think is quite accurate, like mm. you're saying is there's this crazy war going on, mm. people firing grenades and cars with assault rifles on the mm. back and there's just like, someone watching TV in a, in a little shop down the road. That's, uh, just, like, that's just like, can't this be is every day. I remember that scene, yeah. People can't be, it's, it's life, life continues as usual for many people. It's um, crazy, yeah. What it's, their normal is in comparison to a lot of other people's normals is very different. Perspective, dude. Exactly. Perspective. So yeah. what's happening here? Because clearly you're not taking the photo because you're in the photo. Yeah, yeah. That was in uh, the Durance. <laughs> yeah, out, yeah, in the Boland. Um, I was covering, uh, we were covering the farm wage dispute in the, the, the grape industry, the, the wine industry. Um, these people that have been working the land for, you know, since the land was stolen, <laughs> um, were demanding an increase in wages. Um, they were getting paid about uh, $8 a day, the equivalent, less than 100 about 100 rand a day. And they wanted about 150 rand a day. Um, and so we spent- How dare they? How dare they? How dare they? Uh, they spent, we spent weeks covering that story. And um, this day, I, I'm not gonna mention any names. Um, so we get sent to the Durance. And I was with a writer, my writer. No, I'm kidding. Because uh, they always say, oh, this is my photographer. <laughs> like, fuck off. Um, I was with a writer and we took an intern with us, dude. This intern was from uh, Singapore, like fucking one of the safest places in the world. Fresh out of the... <laughs> fresh. Fresh, fresh out of the pool. <laughs> nice, nice kid. Great kid. Lovely kid. And so I was responsible for the car. That's the company car. The, that, news, the, the newspaper's The car, car in the background on fire is the company yeah, car. Yeah, that's the company car. Okay. And uh, so I go with the police, right? I go with the police and a bunch of other photographers and they engage in the protesters with rubber bullets and tear gas. And we go at a ways up the road, at least a kilometer or two. And slowly but surely, uh, the cops are advancing down the highway back towards where we were. And before I left, I gave the keys to the writer and I was like, do not move this car, okay? And I don't even think he had his license at the time. I can't be sure, can't remember, um, but whatever. And so in, in the interim, this dude decided to get in the car with the intern and some of my gear in the back and he drives to the fucking riot. He drives into like where these people where these people are protesting. Maybe, I, I can't remember, 
maybe when he parked the car there, actually, no, he definitely parked the car there when they were protesting because him and this, this kid got pulled out the car. They got pulled out the car. They tipped it over. I'm not sure which one happened first. Um, they ripped gear out the back. They stole it and then they set it on fire. Um, at the same time, I'm walking down the road with these other photographers and we see this thick black smoke, like a ways head. And there was just something inside of me that was like, that's your car burning. And we get there and as you'll have it, it was my car burning. And um, like, what can you do? You just laugh. Take a good photo. Take for, it. That's, for a great, Facebook. that's a great picture. <laughs> I, I think that picture used to be on my Tinder. Um, <laughs> I think it's awesome, you know, yeah. and you can see you're clearly just like, you're just in the situation. Like, what are you going to do? You're not going to do anything. You're what just, are you going to do? You just look like you're, you're happy and you're just like, you know, making the best out of a bad I, situation. I remember getting angry. I remember getting angry in the moment. And then one of the other photographers was like, there's no need for that. Like, what is, what is being angry going to do? Your car's burned. It's done. It's done, yeah. You know, like focus on what the job at hand. And also the other thing is what we were talking about earlier is you're in someone else's environment. Yeah. So whatever happens to you, technically you probably shouldn't be there. I want to talk now about some of the adventures that you've been on and some of the adventures that you're planning to go on. You're planning to row. Yeah, I want to row across the Atlantic across the Atlantic, solo by yourself. Mm. Why did you decide that this mission was important to you? It's, it's not so much about the row, it's about a dream. It's about, you know, the dr a dream pr primarily. It's that same high I got from achieving my dream of, of, of wanting to become a conflict photographer than becoming one, that's something that left a mark on my life, which was like, it feels fucking good to do the things you set out to do. That being said, my goal for life was always adventure. I thought conflict photography would give me that adventure. I chose it. I was wrong about it. Okay, it wasn't what I thought it would be. Um, and it would mo more than likely end horribly. But my ambition of adventure hasn't changed. Um, if anything, rowing is just a vehicle. I see myself as someone that wants to make a life of adventure. I want to go to the South Pole. I want to climb the greatest mountains. Um, rowing is how is the vehicle that gets me in the door. It's, I know the sea, I've sailed the Atlantic. It's something I can do by myself. It doesn't scare me that much. It's doable. Um, and I think it'll be fucking fun. I think it'll be awesome, man. Yeah. And uh, tell me about the preparations that you've kind of, been going through to make this possible oh dude uh, you see like you can't ask that question without getting into like some of the gritty details i think you know the i've accumulated adventure experience whether it's sailing or climbing and i've sailed the atlantic and i've climbed our capitan and other mountains around the world and if anything has just grown and grown has made me realize what is possible besides getting to war I set myself a goal, I tick it off, I make it happen, sick, what's next? Um, the physical preparation is, is that's easy. You know, I have a, I have a great gym in Cape Town, um, you know, Atlantic Fitness, and they're helping me a lot. And I, I love training. I think to be physical, physically healthy is, is a great thing to have. It's a great asset. Um, you know, to see that I live longer, hopefully. 
Um, that doesn't bother me. I can get myself physically ready. The, the mental preparation, um, there's only so much you can do until you're out there. You know, um, I like the idea that at some point rowing the Atlantic, I'm going to fail. Who I am is going to fail. Okay. I want to meet that dude that comes after. So it's like one of two things, right? Either I fail and I'm weak and I just can't go on, in which case I'm fucked. Or you enter that moment. You enter that space where, now, okay, now what? Okay, you've given it all. Are you going to slump back and, you know, either die or hopefully be rescued? Probably not. Or is that person waiting to step out into that time and space? And I want to meet that guy. I want to meet that man. Who you become once you've reached your limits. Exactly. Yes. Um, adventure, being, I don't know, I'll respond to being alone for so long. Um, it's scary. Um, but there's only one way to find out. Is by doing it. Uh, dollar what you must, bro. Yeah, you know, <laughs> dollar what you must. Your boat's called Dollar. My hey? boat's going to be called Dollar, yeah. Um, there's only one way to find out. And I think that's something that applies for, for climbing, sailing, being a conflict photographer. Um, shit, I'm in love now. Dala what you must. I think it applies to everything, really. Everything. In because, I mean, with this podcast, mm. I would have never, I mean, it's a lot of hard work. Mm. And I would have never known how awesome it could be if I never just did it. You know? Exactly. Because I think that's something that a lot of people ask me is, how do you start? Where do you start? You start. You just start. Yeah, you literally just start. Just start. You mm -hmm. find something, you run into a problem. Yeah. You solve the problem, you continue. And the best thing to do is ask people that have gone through it as well. Yeah. You know, there's so many people around you that are doing similar things or want to do similar things yeah. and uh, just lean on other people as well. I think the best thing to do is like, there's a high likelihood I might fail, right? With all of us. But I want to fail higher than most people even start. You know, like my, like failing for me doesn't bother me, you know, but. At least I, you know that you tried. At least I know that I tried, you know, the, like life is going on, dude. I have to pay for rent. I want to have adventures. I want to travel. I, there's so much I want to do. I think the one thing conflict gave me is the ability to adapt quickly and also be flexible. And when are you planning to go on this adventure? Um, well, I would have liked to go at the end of this year. Um, I was planning on rowing from Cape Town to Barbados and to break the world record for the furthest solo Atlantic row. Um, finding money for that hasn't been so, so easy. Um, so yeah, I've been forced to adapt. I'm currently looking at options to rent a boat in Europe and rowing from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean, which will not see me get the, the world record. But at the same time, I think... Being the first African person of color is more important than a world record. Um, I think the world record is just ego, you know. Uh, to be the best. To, to, to be the best, like what's the point? Because some other dude's just gonna go break that record after you. Exactly. You know, it's, it's worth nothing. Um, and why must I suffer for that long? You know, I could row from Cape Town, it's gonna take much longer. Or I could row, I think equally as impressive and equally as challenging for myself from someplace else, but not like, no, like why be a martyr? There's no need for that. I want, you know, it's plain and simple. I want to be the first person of color to, for 
because representation is lacking in the outdoor space, full stop. You know, someone that comes to mind when you talk about this adventure and the challenges that you mm. face kind of getting it started and getting funding. Mm. Uh, did you see the the 14 Peaks documentary? Oh, Nims Die, that with, was amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's just insane. That bro. was amazing. And that just shows that when you do want something bad enough, yeah. you will achieve it. You will achieve I think I took from that, like the man's a, the man's a, is a machine, like to, to be, first of all, a Gurkha, and then SAS. I think before we get into it, let's let's give, will you give like a little bit of an overview of what he did for the people that have never heard about sure. the story? So um, 14 Peaks is about Nimsday, um, man from Nepal. And he climbs the 14 highest mountains in, a re I can't remember the time. I think it was like- uh, I think it was like six months. And I think, six months, I yeah. think Or seven months. And he spent like two of those months or three of those months looking for like visas and stuff and yeah. permission to do what he so, wanted to someone do. Someone actually broke his record uh, now recently. But he was the first. Yeah, he was. The <laughs> no, he wasn't the first. Um, in that time span. In that time span. In that yeah. time span, he was the first. Um, yeah, so this man is Nepali. He joined the Gurkhas, which is uh, an elite um, Nepali military regiment which served in the British Army. He then went on to join the SAS, which is like just the fucking just bad men. Um, in a good, uh, no, they badasses. Um, and he's a mountaineer and he climbed 14 of the highest peaks in, you know, forgive me if I'm wrong about the time span, but six months, let's say. Six, seven months, yeah. Um, and this documentary and his book is about uh, his journey and just, just, just the, just peak human performance at, at another level. I mean, so the 14 peaks is like a real challenge, right? Mm. And the best mountaineers in the world mm. have failed at yeah. climbing one of those peaks. Oh yeah. So the record before him mm. was 17 years. Yeah. The by, person that had climbed them the fastest altogether by Reinhard Messner, yeah. was over 17 years and he did it in six months. Yeah. And he could have done it much quicker. But that's that's the thing about achievement. Like you look at the look at look at running, for example. You know, decades ago, a hundred years ago, they said the four-minute mile was impossible. Okay, no one could do it. And then it took one dude to do it. And within weeks, three someone, other, else broke it. someone else broke it. Well, that record, that record mark, right? That's the power of representation. When people see someone do something else- That they thought was impossible. That they thought was impossible, they are more likely to do it themselves. Um, you know, like it's, 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 it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating what we as humans can achieve, what we can do. But the, another thing, another takeaway I took from Nims Dai's book and, and this documentary was that everybody wants to enjoy your success, right? Everybody wants to flock to you when you're succeeding. But, in all, but before you get there- No one wants to help you get nobody there. Nobody wants to help you get there. But they want to dine with you once you get yeah. there. And also like he speaks about this at length in his book. And he's, it's like, if he was a Western climber doing the same thing, Right, he would have fucking a lot more support. A lot more support going People into it. Yeah, gain, gain into it, not have to worry about anything. But because things are different, you know that 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 respect and that representation was lacking. It was so much harder to get there. Now he's now, I'm I'm curious to see what he's gonna do next. I don't know if he can do anything more impressive than that. I mean, it is it's mind blowing. Um, but I mean, just just to end off, who are some people, adventurers, or just people in general that inspire you? I think you know that the question has that answer has changed a lot through time. Um, 
you know, there's there's a there's a polar explorer and philosopher called Erling Kager, um, who is amazing. He has uh, sailed the world, been to both poles, climbed the highest mountains, and he's also a philosopher, and he writes amazing books, um, which have honestly been very enlightening. But other than that, um, honestly. I would say my family and my culture have been the best inspiration. I hear a lot and I see a lot based on experience. And I hear a lot. I always hear about like generational trauma, right? Which is certainly true. But with generational trauma, there is a generational strength. And I see what my family have been through, what my people have been through. And um, I feel like I owe them. You know, I do feel that a little and shit, dude. Like, um, well, you owe the next generation to make sure that definitely. it stops with you. And definitely, in fact, you know, my people both Cape Town. You know, that's a great achievement. And um, yeah, I'm very proud to be colored. I'm very proud of what we've achieved and what we gain to achieve. Amazing, man. And I know that you're going to motivate and inspire mm. so many others. I hope so. I think so. I, I know you think will. so. I know yeah. you will. I mean, you've inspired me today. So yeah, thanks a lot, dude. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your stories Sorry. and uh, your your wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> wisdom, wisdom. And um, it's so awesome to to be able to have another photographer on the podcast. Mm. And uh, yeah, man, I I hope to bring you back on the podcast once you've completed your mission. Yeah, I look forward of to sailing that. the Atlantic, rowing the Atlantic, rowing the Atlantic. Sorry, <laughs> you've already sailed it. <laughs> Everyone fucks that up. It's fine. <laughs> Anyway, thanks for watching, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wide Awake Podcast, and I'll see you very soon. Cheers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that you have fun doing this. <laughs> <laughs>